Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we're offering five conversations from Season 3, Episode 37. Our look at cirrhosis patients and their needs. Cirrhosis patients have long been a special focus for this podcast due to the fact that they are the most imperiled of all NASH patients and have the shortest time to decompensation and other severe health events. This conversation starts by returning to the question of exactly what we should be measuring in cirrhotic patients. I recall Lars Johansson's comment from previous episode that we would do better to measure what should go on in the liver instead of what we measure today, which is generally what shouldn't. After Ewan Schottenberg mentions liver and spleen volumes as metrics that might help measure what matters, Lars notes a key point. In other organs, our measures and metrics reflect dynamic organ function, whereas for the liver, we're using static biopsy tissue slices, which makes the task infinitely harder. The entire flow of the conversation shifts when I ask the group what we can do that would benefit patients most. Louise Campbell jumps in to discuss how many patients are lost to treatment after they receive their initial diagnoses, probably half, mostly because health systems neither follow up well enough nor provide disease information that will motivate patients to follow up on their own. She states, and Jorn agrees, that automating the process of running analyses will make it easier to identify patients that need help and also easier to notify them in a more timely and consistent manner. As the conversation ends, Louise notes how these communication and information issues and shortfalls are at the heart of, as she puts it, being obstructive to care. In the absence of new drugs, this conversation focuses on the pincer movement of improving patient communication and engagement on one flank and producing superior disease models, liquid biomarkers, and new drugs on the other. The interplay of the two sets of needs creates an interesting dynamic in its own right. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. What we're going to be talking about today is cirrhosis. We had an episode last summer on cirrhosis that was extremely well received. We've come back to it a couple of times since then with different casts of characters. And there was a cirrhosis late breaker with semaglutide at ILC a couple of weeks ago, which Jorn is an author. And one of the many one-on-one conversations Lars and I have had that for technical reasons have not made it onto this program was actually about some of the things that he is doing and, and, and they are developing to study and evaluate cirrhosis. So I think this should be a fascinating conversation. And I'm excited to listen. Louise and I have decided we know how to ask questions, and that's probably all we need to do. It's interesting because when you are quoted on this podcast in your absence, it is most frequently the comment you made about how much of what we do looking at the liver is looking at what shouldn't be there or isn't working as compared to what we should do, which is looking at what is working and how well. So when you start talking about stellate cell activation or deactivation, I think then you're getting really at the heart of the issue, right? Which is, so what's supposed to be going on here? Lars Johansson. And, and, and you know, it, it's interesting just when you think of the other diseases associated in, in NASH populations, is, which is myocardial function and renal function, it's all measured by functional tests and not by biopsies, which I think makes perfect sense. I mean, we have GFR, we have ejection fractions, which are all functional tests. And in the liver, we just don't use that as much as we should, I think, because it will tell you about the functional research. Jörn Schattenberg. And there are some functional tests that have been used and studied in, in the liver field. Some are propagated from the U.S. Some are used used by surgeons to actually plan their resective capacities, but they're variable and in, in context of staging the liver disease, they haven't really given us the information we'd want. I think the hepaquant test is probably the one that's most advanced, in particular in the cirrhotic uh, population, well-established. There are some other tests like Limax that use certain labeled compounds, acetaminophen uh, being metabolized in the liver, and the correlation with liver function and liver size is there, but it's not helping that much in terms 
terms of assessing the disease stage in, in, in terms of uh, what's relevant for NASH quite yet. And and I think the technologies you've been mentioning, they're more, they, they, have, they have a higher granularity and could potentially pick up more subtle aspects of the disease. I agree. And I think we still have to see and, and obviously look at the outcome. But I, I think it's just interesting that because the disease is defined by biopsy, we're stuck on it. Like, I mean, CKD is defined by GFR and heart failure is defined by ejection fraction. They are all defined by functional out- measures rather than biopsies. And that's, of course, why the acceptance of using them is so much higher. Yeah. And if you look at what's changed in this field in the last three years, I think it's heading in that direction, right? We're not so focused on what do you have to do to get fibrosis level down anymore. We're really a lot more focused on how does the liver work and what are the things that we can measure on the way there. So let me ask all three of you from your three different perspectives, where is the next breakthrough in terms of understanding how to help cirrhosis patients likely to come from? Is it likely to be a clinical trial that works or a more practical way to use diagnostics for patients living with the disease today or better testing methods to figure out faster what drugs do? Where do you see the next breakthrough? I'm going to jump in here because I'm going to link it back to what Jean was saying at the very beginning. And it's the patients who present with biopsy F4 that we didn't know and we haven't detected and they've been in healthcare for a number of years. So I'd like to see the breakthrough come in the better diagnostics and pickup of patients within hospital systems. Now, whether that's adding a FIB4 to every score that's done through a lobotomy system to pick up the highest risks in healthcare, we've heard the comment regularly that diabetes and endocrine don't see cirrhosis in their populations and primary care. So we've also at Barcelona had John Dillon talking about ILFT where they run these diagnostics to pick up the highest risks. But even with well-engaged primary care physicians and hospitals, only 50% of that group actually responded to the abnormalities. That's where we need to target. We're getting better diagnostics. We're moving the needle on that, but we're still presenting late. We're still not picking up patients that have been in healthcare for a long time. That's where patients always feel frustrated, but I've been told not to worry. I've had multiple tests. It was never picked up, or somebody told me I had an abnormal test 20 years ago. So there is a level of frustration from the patient population, not only the medical and nursing communities, in this late-stage diagnosis. So early diagnostics and better markers fit for elf as routine may well be something that we could utilize to pick up these patients. I'm vaguely remembering a data point that says that 50% of all cirrhosis patients find out they have cirrhosis for the first time on a random visit picked up for another reason and did not even know they had liver disease before that. I think that's the right number. So that in and of itself, as Louise points out, becomes a huge problem. Is it a problem we have the potential to do something about currently? Or what do you think has got to happen for us to get there? Yeah, I think you mentioned, you asked about therapeutics, Roger. I think we have to get there. We have to identify these patients and we have to provide solutions, diagnostic solutions and care pathways or let's say provide some risk stratification approaches in terms of who do we want to scan for suspected compensated cirrhosis in what treating physician has never thought of. So I think at that point it leaves the rationale of the physician ordering a test because they would never suspect cirrhosis in their patients and we need something that's automated um, has been just mentioned a little bit earlier with ILFTs or electronic healthcare record mining by an artificial intelligence um, algorithm. But even then, and I'm going to say this again here, the study we've done or that uh, colleagues of mine from Mainz have done together with some other Germans was the SEAL program where we use 
used a test to identify patients that are likely to have advanced disease, and half of them never showed up for their follow-up appointment. So we're not transmitting the information well enough, even with the imperfect tests we have today, or maybe because of the imperfect tests. So I think at multiple levels, we have to improve diagnostic performance. We have to remind physicians to test for this or have something do this automatically and then link these patients to care. So um, it's all about the referral pathways here again, I think. Now we're back in Barcelona, right? Luis just mentioned John Dillon. We are back in, in Barcelona because, I mean, the science is really elegant, right? It was two weeks ago that we had Scott and Neil on talking about different things that, that they were finding that could be done that were all way over my head, Jorn. So you, you, you honor me when you say Roger can talk about this because he remembers. I remember vaguely the conversation, but the science was something I could follow, but not something I could articulate. Let me let me ask Lars. Lars, what have you seen recently in the basic science research that gives you encouragement about where we can make better or faster breakthroughs or do a better job of understanding how to identify and help patients? And by the way, the answer could be nothing, but I'm well, guessing that's uh, not it. I think it's also the... Com- I mean, I'm, I'm coming... My background is in atherosclerosis originally 25 years ago. You know, it's a very slowly progressing disease. And the way you do it is in the early stage of developed drug development, uh, and you, you identify patients and, and you look at treatment response by a combination of data, imaging, circulating biomarkers, what have you. And then in the end, to have something that really will help you here, it has to be really simple and relatively cheap. It can't be too expensive. So I don't think in the end that you will have a very expensive imaging test for every patient here. It has to be feasible. But what I do think is that we can use the combination of imaging and circulating biomarkers to really identify those circulating biomarkers that will predict patients' outcome. That in combination within the large outcome trials being done right now, because there we will, they are collecting in some of them lots of data, biobanking material that we can go back and mine and look at outcome and prediction. So I think all these big trials currently being done is actually whether they are positive or not, <laughs> will still help in driving the identification of the best biomarkers for risk prediction. So uh, I think the studies itself, that they will help us whether they are positive or not. Louise Campbell. I think there's one point that when we talk about the studies, when we talk about these outcomes, what we're looking at is systems that have been very nicely designed. They have proper support. They have proper interventions. They have nursing resources. They have administration resources. The one thing that is always obstructive to the care that I found in patients with cirrhosis is the hospital systems aren't configured to do that. Only 25% of letters that went out for appointments didn't make it to patients. So therefore, you've got rid of 25% of the people who didn't know they had an appointment in the first place. We introduced nurse calls and checking for for patients on cirrhosis who came for ultrasounds, for example. 49% of people didn't attend ultrasound surveillance. Their high-risk patients know they're high-risk. They didn't get appointments. We got that down to 17% by engaging with the patients, making sure the data was right, their addresses were right. The system needs to be better configured to enable patients to engage. It also needs to be enabled and configured appropriately for us to implement all of the dynamic work that's going on 
on to be delivered to patients in their care. Because if the system doesn't work where it should, phone numbers are wrong, emails are wrong, patients have moved, letters don't get there. We have a problem. We cannot keep these patients in. They lose the ability to be followed up and we lose that contact and trust breaks down because you're not available. These are fundamental issues that are so big that everybody just believes they work and they don't. And they're really obstructive to the care that we're designing now. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingthenash.com. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Surfing the Nash Tsunami on Wednesday, July 27th. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.